This is the 18th season of Bass Talk Live. With your host, Matt Pangrad. BTL is brought to you by Lorance, Bass Cat Boats, AFCO, Strike King Lures, Sunline, Big Bite Baits, Spro, X-Zone Lures, Gamakatsu, The Bass Tank, Denali Rods, and Pro Guide Batteries. PTL, coming at ya! Good morning and welcome to another exciting edition of BTL Bass Talk Live, where we are going to talk about bass fishing. Had to do a double take when I walked back into the studio this morning. It has been a minute, just a very hectic October. Uh, You kind of look at the schedule at the beginning of the year uh, with the media obligations that I had and then fishing all nine opens and then the the various traveling that you have. And you say, man, there's a couple different stretches uh, that are going to be rather challenging logistically wise. And we got through the majority of the year and we got to October and dude, it was, it was an absolute grind. Started off uh, with uh, the open on Lake Hartwell, uh, was actually stuck in uh, South Carolina for a couple days, break the back brakes. I had a brake pad break, which I didn't know was a thing. Like my brakes were in good shape. And then all of a sudden I was like driving to the ramp and it was like metal on metal. So I had to stay. And then I didn't realize it till it was Saturday. It was Saturday night, had to stay Sunday, got it fixed Monday, drove straight from there to Michigan for the, uh, rather outdoors the, or the, uh, strike King lose, uh, media event, got some really cool stuff there, kind of checked something off on the bucket list there, got to get into the boat with Mark Zona for a couple hours and fish for some smallmouth and do some work, did some live shows from there, and then went uh, was home for 24 hours, knocked out a BTL, then went down to Rayburn, uh, which was... A, a really, really cool week. Uh, as you know, throughout the year in the opens, I room with uh, Brad Hallman, John Sokup, and uh, Andrew Upshaw. Uh, and to have, uh, to be there to watch, to get to see uh, throughout the year what uh, Bradley Hallman and uh, John uh, went through on their quest for Brad to requalify for the Elite Series after uh, having been there for a number of years when the Elite Series kicked off, and then John uh, in his first full year fishing it. Uh, both of those guys got the job done. That will be a extravaganza tomorrow, Tuesday, uh, on BTL. We will have uh, both John and Brad live. We're actually going to open up the Sunline hotline. You can congratulate them, ask them questions, do whatever you want to do. They're going to break down their years, how it went down, their keys, their highs, their lows, what it feels like to be able to be called uh, an elite series pro. Different story for both of them. A lot of both of those guys have a lot on their plates, but really cool to see. Uh, how it went down for both of them. Not an easy tournament there. Uh, the last Bassmaster Open on Sam Rayburn. Keith Combs gets the job done just a little bit over 15 pounds a day. 46.5 uh, gets the job done for Keith Combs on a stingy Rayburn. Now, yeah, most years that would be a double qualifier because he fished them all and then it'd go down to another Elite Series angler. But Keith finished 64th in the Elite Series, so that was his last chance. He waited until the last possible today to get into the uh, Tennessee Classic coming up next year. But his stats, I know they call him you know, Mr. Texas. You know what he's done in the TTBC in the past and some of the other events uh, in Texas. 
Uh, and it's insane how good he is in Texas. So I went back and just looked at his AAA events just on Rayburn in the past uh, in the past two years. So 2020, 2021, and then through 2022. So just a little bit less than three years. He won this event. He was second in a Toyota Series on Rayburn earlier this year. He won a Toyota Series on Rayburn in 2021, and he was fourth on Rayburn uh, in a Bassmaster Open in 2020. So you want to talk about a dude who's got it dialed, who knows how to cash checks, and lift trophies on a, on a body of water all over Texas, specifically Rayburn. I don't think anybody wants any piece of Keith Combs on Rayburn. That dude is an absolute animal. And watching him on live, it was like he'd almost saved that honey hole for the last day and, and knew the damage that he was uh, that he was going to do. We have a really good show today. Uh, like I said, I was out of town, but but it brought a smile to my face. One of the good guys in the sport. You know, we talked a lot about the U.S. Open a couple weeks ago getting moved from Lake Mead to Mojave because of low water conditions on Lake Mead and who knows where the future of that is going uh in the in the upcoming years but it was moved uh to Mojave uh, another fishery that has the potential for big bags particularly big bags of smallmouth uh so that went down i think it was like October 10th through October 16th uh and Josh Bertrand wire to wire leads the thing he goes uh what do you he had like 23 20 and 18 uh, to hold off a red hot Spencer Sheffield fresh off of another smallmouth win on one of Bertrand's favorite fisheries up at Thousand Islands. But uh, Josh Bertrand, who had a solid year on uh, the BPT, made the Red Crest this year, made over $50,000, caps things off with, uh, I believe it was $75,000 cash and then a fully rigged uh, bass cap boat. So you go from a decent year, a solid year. I'd say Josh would probably have liked to have had a better year to 150,000 in earnings plus a brand new boat right at the end of the year. So, uh, definitely wanted to get Josh on, uh, to talk about that U S open win, how he got it done. What makes him so good at drop shotting? Because they say, Oh, well, he's a drop shotter. He's going to catch him there. But in the events that he's done well, and you look at his Elite Series win, you look at how he's done well on the uh, BPT, kind of over the course of his career, he's better at it than 99% of the guys out there. There has to be something in there. I don't know whether it's technique, whether it's mindset, whether it's location, but uh, we'll kind of dive into that educational aspect uh, once we get through the logistics of why the tournament went down with Josh as to why he is better at drop shotting uh, than everyone else. Before we go to our first break and then bring Josh Bertrand back in, I do want to mention, uh, like I said, Hallman, John Soka, they're on the Elite Series now. But there are also guys who are on the Elite Series who made it now that the uh, Opens are wrapped up. And like I said, we'll do a deep dive into this tomorrow with John and Brad. It was cool. Uh, I actually put my boat on the trailer and went back while uh, Hank was figuring up all the numbers and it was dark and you're in a pavilion at Sam Rayburn and there's you know a group of seven or eight guys, the guys from the Centrals and the uh, guys from the Overalls and they all have their phones and they're jockeying for the numbers and positions and you're talking and they're saying, Panger, what, you know, what do you think? What are you? I'm like, dude, I haven't done the numbers i've been trying to catch a freaking 15 inch fish out there on rayburn all week i haven't been paying attention to this I, I was out of it but uh you know hank comes out with the numbers and he's like you're in and you're in and you're in and then there's all these scenarios and it's cool to see these guys who have, have busted their butt so long actually it's that moment where they achieve the dream where it's is it really worth it the 1800 entry fees and going into the hole and doing all that and then you see that in their eye and it kind of motivates you really wants you to get back in it and give it another shot but in the northerns uh alex weatherall Koyuda Fujita. Now, I will learn how to pronounce his first name because this guy is fixing to destroy every finesse fishing tournament that happens on the Bassmaster Elite Series for the next 15 years. From the people that I've talked to, 
and I got to meet them. There is a language barrier there, but I've talked to some of the best in the business with uh, finesse fishing. This guy is already at the top, like scary good with three to six pound test, highly pressured. That this dude is going to be a superstar on the elite series for years to come. And then Keith Pochet qualified through the Northerns with the points in the Southerns. You have Bryant Smith, uh, uh, established pro has been fishing on MPFL. Coop Gallant got in through the Southerns and then Joey Sifuentes. Uh, we got a cowboy hat on the elite series now in the centrals. Bradley Hallman wins the points. Kyle Norsetter fishes his way into the Bassmaster elite series. He was one point out one point behind James Nigemeyer going into the final day at Rayburn. And what he had to do was finish ninth or above to make the Elite Series. And he did just that, so he's on it. And then Logan Latuso also makes that third spot. Dude had five pounds on the first day at Rayburn in the Open, bust a 31-pound bag, had like a 9.11 and a 9.13 on day two. And then he went into the final day leading, knowing that he caught five pounds on the first day, had back-to-back tens on the second day, and he has to finish above seventh place to make the Elite Series. And he did just that as well. So uh, he, he maintained it. So Logan Latuso in. Uh, and then in the overall standings, it actually went down to sixth place. Cole Sands, David Gaston, and John Sokup. Uh, those are your overall competitors. Uh, we always talk about the averages. We'll go into this more. Northerns took an average of a 17th place finish. Centrals took an average of a 19th place finish. And the Southerns took an average of a 21st place finish overall. Uh, sixth place in the overall. John Sokup got in. He averaged 46th place uh, to make the Elite Series. So technically, you can make the Elite Series through the overalls, fish nine events, and have zero earnings. You can miss the check cut in every single event and still make the Elite Series. We'll see. It'll be interesting to see if they uh, uh, if they change that. Uh, Keith Pochet blows the overall opens out of the way. Uh, out of the water, 1507 averages 33rd place through all nine events, roughly 200 anglers. So that's important. So that's just a little taste of all of the things that were uh, that were going on in the Bass Master Opens. Meanwhile, Josh Bertrand was trying to figure out what to do with a brand new Bass Cat and how to spend a $75,000. So we're going to take our first break of the show. And when we come back, Arizona's Josh Bertrand talking about how he got the job done a little over a week ago on Mojave in the U.S. Open. It's BTL live on a Monday back in studio for the foreseeable future, too. We'll be back right after this. Your key to better fishing this season is Elite FS, now available at a new lower price. Get Elite FS9 today for $9.99, and we'll throw in a CMAP reveal chart, our premium mapping solution for free. Elite FS works with all state-of-the-art Lorenz sonar, from chirp, side-scan, and down-scan imaging with fish reveal to high-resolution active target live sonar. Elite FS9 and CMAP reveal. Offer ends August 31st. The new Puma STS has been redesigned from the ground up. With the angler, design, function, and performance in mind, nothing on this new offering was compromised and the only thing carried over from the previous version is the name. Based on the soft touch series hull that started with the flagship Jaguar, this new model is nimble and performs incredibly well at all speeds with either a 250 or 300 horsepower engine. Featuring a new 96 inch wide body footprint, this hull measures out at 20 foot 7 inches in length. Industry leading design coupled with tournament winning performance. The Puma STS from Basscat. Feel the rush. 
When you're catching fish for a living, you can't let a little cold, rain, heat, humidity, or anything else get in the way of a payday. I wear AFCO. Any fish, any water. The KVD 100 Jerkbait. 15 different colors. A perfect combination of roll, wiggle, and flash. Increased castability. 3D eyes. Premium black nickel hooks. KVD. Tie one on. Striking lures. Are you looking to install your own fishing electronics? Well, the Bass Tank is here to help you. The solution is the Bass Tank Power Harness. It takes the guesswork out of installation. No more voltage issues or interference. Designed by an engineer so that you can get professional results right there in your own garage. Installation done right with the help of the Bass Tank Power Harness. You can feel confident knowing that your installation was done right. The Bass Tank Power Harness. Give us a call or order yours today at thebasstank.com. Get the best patterns backed by tournament data. Start by finding the best 10% of your lake. Know exactly what to look for and what to throw. After that, you just put them in the boat. Try the Deep Dive app today. Get that beast right there. All right, welcome back. BTL Live. It feels good to be back in studio on a Monday. And one of the things that I'm working, uh, not working, I've done it uh, for next year is a lot more live on location stuff. Now, I didn't have the technology fully dialed in from the, the Strike King Lose Writers Conference, but had a great, uh, great feedback, great return from that uh, traveling studio next year for all nine of the opens on location uh, from the open. So that's going to be... Uh, it's challenging to try to get this stuff done. Someone else who knows how, how challenging it is to try to fit in a, uh, a podcast and a very popular show along with, uh, well, he's got a lot more family obligations than I do, uh, and a, a, a career as a very uh, successful professional bass angler and U.S. Open champion would be none other than Josh Bertrand, who got up at 6.30 in the morning for this. Thank you very much, Josh. I appreciate it. Welcome to BTL. Hey, thanks much, man. You know, I, I'm, I was just about to say how blown away I am that you can do the traveling you're doing, do the fishing you're doing, and then hop back in the studio and, and just be so ready to go. Do such a good job with the show. It's uh, our, our show is so shoddy compared to yours. And That is uh, not true. I, yes, you have is. an amazing, amazing yeah. podcast, Angler's Happy Hour. Well, I mean, yeah, th thanks. It's far from that, but it's just, it's, I, I have all the excuses in the world when we miss an episode and we don't have time to get one done. And just hearing about like your last couple weeks and watching you hop back in and do what you do. It's, it's amazing, man. It's unbelievable. Yeah. Well, uh, BTL is a staple. It helps that Jeffrey's uh, did it for 17 years to kind of get it down. Uh, last week we did a, I actually did a fall break. We had done a, a more shows than we normally do for the first year, mainly because I had a lot of people that were like, ah, oh, there's no way Matt's going to be able to fish, do his media obligations and keep up with the podcast. And I kind of motivated, kind of motivated me a little bit to be like, Hey, no, watch this. I'm going to get it done. But took a fall break last week, but, uh, uh, back, back in the studio this week. But man, I, I like that element of the, the live, you've got a little different style show. I love the way you guys, uh, really break stuff down. You have unique guests, the guide stories that you guys, uh, 
talk about over there i find intriguing and interesting uh and then also the way you uh you break down your fishing it's just a great mix of uh of i mean you've got you know experience you have the professional angler side on yours and you have experience and guide experience and then kind of you know getting into it and learning along the way it's a great mix over there so highly recommend if you're out of btls um or just don't like the content that i'm putting out on btl go download and watch angler's happy hour yeah, and and hey, since you you already plugged my show, dude, I gotta run, man. Um, <laughs> You're out. You're done. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, I gotta go, dude. <laughs> uh, I kind of mentioned it at the beginning of the of the show, and I talked about uh, I talked about being able to watch uh, Hallman and and John Sokup. Like they kind of cut it close uh, going into that final event, but after that first day, you know, Hallman was like in the top ten, and Sokup was like like and it was a tough bite was there a moment in your career where do you remember where it was like the night before that that day and you were like all right this is it all the freaking marbles are on the table and it's either do or die and no excuses tomorrow yeah you know and in that situation that that you are we're all in this year especially those two guys like it's it's so important because like you worked so hard all year to get to that point and like hey if you don't if it doesn't happen tomorrow, you got to wait a whole year, you know, for this to happen. And, you know, there's no guarantees you'll be in position the next year. So, yeah, it's not like you just get another shot in the next tournament, like a regular season, you know, event. Like this is, it's a culmination of an entire year's work, all that pressure on one day. And uh, again, you know, you might get another shot next year or, or things might happen where you're not in that position for another three years, you know? So that's a lot of pressure. Um, did you blow it away when you qualified for the elite series in your first year? Like, did you just have to go out and not tank? You know, I ended up at, after the final day of fishing that year. And I think it was 2012. I, I was, I had plenty of points to spare, but the way that last tournament went that year, uh, I was at Fort Gibson and uh, I had a bad first day. So like, that was the first day I was in like 65th place or something like that. So I really did have that pressure on the final day. And I ended up having a good last day and finished like 17th and, and made it in pretty easily. But um, yeah, that last tournament was, was a stressful one. And um, you know, the, the first day I, I remember specifically having uh, some fish I was really excited about and they completely vanished. Um, I ended up catching like three, in the last hour of fishing to even give me a chance the second day. Um, so yeah, it was an ugly, wow. uh, you know, a dirty, grimy last tournament for me. That, that was just an sure. ugly year. If I remember right, because you were in it with Brent Chapman at Louisville. And that was the one where like, if you caught two fish, you were like in the top 10 cut, it was like brutally cold, massive winds that took like yep. no weight at all. So like every fish is critical. And then uh table rock that usually is just, a slug fest that was also a little bit stingy and then fort gibson is always stingy when you put 200 boats on it that's a, city of wagner pays money to put 100 too many boats on a lake than they should but yeah, fort gibson's yeah, always lake, sketchy but... it's always sketchy that was a sketchy year to qualify it was it really was yeah it's, it's the centrals are notoriously tough man as you know like it's uh if there's one division that just ends up having tough tournaments it's the centrals yeah and then, so then I was also going to ask you about, you know, you had the, the kind of do or die tournament with Justin Lucas when you guys were locked in that AOI battle that went down, uh, that went down to the wire. But that was a weird deal because you were like having a kid 
at that final event too. So you had like so much on your plate and obviously the kid took precedence over the Derby. Yeah. And that tournament, it's, it's funny in, in fishing how like sometimes you just have pressure that you put on yourself, pressure that gets put on you from other angles and stuff. And that tournament uh, over at Chatoog, you know, Justin had a pretty good lead going into the uh, final event for angler of the year. Like I remember if he would have finished 13th or better, mm-hmm. I could have won and still not got him. Right. Yeah. So that was going on. Um, my wife is like five days from having a baby <laughs> and I'm across the country. And on top of that, dude, the whole breakup of all the fishing world was going on, dude, at the same oh, yeah, time. That was the same. So year. it was, so it was going on like that week. Everyone's trying to figure out what they're going to do next year. And, um, it was just a pressure packed week for me. And, and, you know, when the tournament, I went out and bombed the first day of the tournament, Justin went out and caught him. And at that point, the pressure was off. Like, I mean, the, the, I hate to say it, but that week that, that, that fishing tournament was not the most important thing going on. You know, I, I had so much like the, the fishing was like the second or third thing on my mind. Mm-hmm. So it was kind of crazy. Like you would have thought that would have been a, a crazy pressure packed fishing week for me, but um, you know, this past week was, was actually one of the most pressure packed, uh, tournaments and situations I've ever felt just because of the magnitude of the, of, of, of what it was. And then again, um, it's not often that you either get to, or have to carry the lead for three days. And that's a lot of pressure, dude. Like it's, it's actually crazy. I've never carried the lead in a tournament for that long. Um, like maybe for a day, uh, you know, I definitely for a day, a few times, but you don't feel that same pressure. It was pretty wild. Yeah. We'll get into that. So do you think there are some guys that are just built to handle pressure? Like it just doesn't affect them. Like it does the average person, like regardless of definitely. whether it would be like in fishing, they break down on, on the interstate, they have personal pressure, job pressure. You think there's some people that are just wired to handle that internalize it and make the mess most of it. Yep. I a hundred percent. Uh, I think so for sure. And you look at obviously the guys that have dominated in any of their sports, they're obviously those types of guys, but you also see it on a little bit of a smaller level. Like um, I know some guys that, that only catch them when they have to catch them, (laughs) right? Like they, uh, if, if there's not really the pressure of, of, of maybe having to make a cut or make a check or, get X, X place to, to do something to make a championship or a classic, they always catch them. But then when there's no pressure, um, it's not the same, right? Do you know some guys like that? Yeah. That's so weird that that's just like human, like you can't cause because you can't manufacture false pressure. Exactly. Yeah. You can play little head games and stuff, but it doesn't um, work the same. Yeah. Like there's, there's guys that always seem to bomb the first day and then, catch them just enough to make the cut the second day. Right. They just, yeah. they, they get that pressure and they get that fire held up to them and, and they, they always find a way to come through. All right, let's dive into the U S open. First of all, congratulations, massive payday. Uh, but I, I mean, I, I know you, I feel like I know you pretty well and the payday is nice. The, the bass cat is nice, but I feel like, especially from the West Coast, and you're a guy who, if you're available and, and able to, always fish the U.S. Open on Lake Mead, really appreciate the history and the legend and the lore that is behind the one-bass U.S. Open over the last 40 years. 
Yeah, thank you, man. I mean, it. Uh, I, I'm I'm pretty blown away at, at how fortunate I I, I was last week because it was so important, and I knew it was important to me, but I didn't realize it was that important, right? Like the the pressure and the nervousness that I felt during that tournament was like beyond what I've ever felt, and I fished a lot of tournaments, man. It just for whatever reason, um, and I, I know the reasons. I mean, it's just you you look at the guys that won the tournament, you know, John Murray, Aaron Martins, um, Roy Hawk, Cliff Perch, uh, Gary no Klein, way. Rick Klein. It, yeah. Velvet, uh, Folkstad, all, all the oh, who's who of Western fishing and a lot of just tournament fishing, um, you know, in the country, um, they got their name on that thing. And, uh, it's just, it's pretty unbelievable. You know, that's, uh, you just want to put your name on that thing at some point. Right. And, um, it's, it, it's a, it was a little different vibe at Lake Mojave than it was at Mead, but it was still the same thing. Like it's still the U S open. It's still the biggest thing going. Mojave's got its own set of challenges. Mead had its, its challenges and Mojave's got its own challenges. It's still a, a tough Western tournament was not easy to catch limits, not easy to catch keepers out there. Even though the size was a lot bigger, you look down and, and the amount of non-limits is, is staggering. Um, you know, so it, it's, it's a pretty unique tournament for sure. It is. And, uh, who knows what the future holds as far as the location for the U S open. I mean, basically you'd have to have a miracle, I think for it to be on Lake Mead back next year as the water levels continue to drop on Mead. Uh, but kind of talk about what, what was the different vibe? I mean, the guys that I talked to said, man, it still felt like the U.S. Open. It did. But there were certain things that, you know, you always did at Lake Mead and the areas and that it kind of threw a little wrench into it and, and actually got a lot of the guys jacked up and even more excited for it and then the potential of what Mojave could hold. Yeah, it was pretty cool because it was, uh, you know, just your opportunity to catch a big fish is so much better at Mojave. It's funny, you know, to, to set it up for listeners that, that aren't familiar with the lake. You've got Lake Mead as part of the Colorado River chain up on top, um, actually below Powell. So there goes Powell, Lake Mead, Lake Mojave, Lake Havasu, as you go south down the chain of the Colorado River. And uh, so this is right below the Hoover Dam coming out of Lake Mead. And uh, it's a pretty good sized lake. I mean, it's it's. I've been saying all week, 50 miles long. I haven't measured it, but I would bet it's somewhere in that that ballpark. It's kind of a long, narrow lake. It's got one section where it opens up pretty wide. They call it the basin. There's a lot of current running through the lake, and it runs straight north and south. So it's notoriously a really, just like me, very rough body of water. The wind gets to blowing out in the desert a lot, and uh, you get a straight south wind blowing against the current for that long. It's it's a horrendous place to, to be a bass boater, but... Uh, when it's calm, it's a beautiful, amazing fishery, really clear water. You know, we, we didn't, we had about 15 foot visibility wow. last week, but it's up to like, I'm not, I'm not exaggerating, exaggerating when I say it, it can be 30 to 40 feet visibility when, uh, when it's clear and I don't have much experience there. It's, it's four and a half hours from my house. There haven't been many tournaments there. This was only my second uh, visit to the lake ever. So uh, I learned a lot about the lake. Um, you know, as the week went on, but, uh, it's, a, it's a pretty unique fishery and it's, it's got, I'd say maybe 50, 50 small mouth, large mouth, but the, the small mouth played a lot more heavily. And I, I would, I would bet it might be like a 60, 40 or 70, 30 split 
as far as the overall population for smallies to largemouth. But uh, the water level stable out there. And I think that's the big difference. You have the water level stable. So there's habitat for those bass to live all year long. Whereas Lake Mead, it fluctuates so much. It's a really inhospitable environment for a bass. And uh, your average size of a bass in Mojave's is literally twice the size of Mead. You're going to have tons of three to five pound fish um, at Mojave. Lots of dead water, you know, not easy to catch them, but the, the, the average size is much better than Mead, which, you know, you know, you've been there, you won the tournament as a, as a triple a, you know, five, six years ago. And uh, dude, it's, if you catch a two pounder, you're stoked at Lake Mead. Yeah, absolutely. Did you know as practice went on that you would have a pretty good crack at being in the hunt on this thing? You know, I, I, I thought that I would probably have a good tournament, you know, with that many boats on the water, you'd never know how it's going to unfold. And especially, you know, to have a legitimate chance to win, you really ultimately, you hope that you have a chance, but dude, I would never be able to, to make that guess that I would have that close, that good of a chance. But, uh, I felt like I was around some good fish and I, I knew what I was doing out there. Um, so I felt good about it. I just, you know, you still, you got to be cautious, <laughs> cautiously optimistic going into any tournament. Yeah. Uh, 2345 to open things up on day one. And I do want to mention, this is a three day tournament for the full field. Uh, everybody fishes uh, for for three days. So yeah. it's not like there's a cut or you're getting, getting anyone out. And, and so that's another unique thing about it. But you had, what did you have a three pound lead, three and a half pound lead basically after the first day? I was stoked about that. And, you know, the, the thing is the lake gets so pressured, you know, it started out with a lot of guys still fishing shallow, but as the week was going on, the shallow bite was getting tougher and more and more guys were making their way out deep. So, you know, the first day I caught everything I could off of, you know, obvious places that were going to get a lot of pressure. You know, I definitely didn't hold back on stuff that was going to get a lot of pressure. Cause if I didn't catch a bass, someone else mm-hmm. was going to come in and catch it behind me. Um, and it was a, it was, I definitely didn't expect to have a lead like that. You know, I, I knew I had a good bag, but I expected, you know, a handful and there were a handful of good bags, but, um, gosh, I was, I was pretty, that's what you need. You know what I mean? You, any tournament you get off to a start like that, um, it gives you a handicap for the rest of the week. You know, it, it was a huge deal. I needed every bit of it. Yeah, well, with Spencer Sheffield behind you, just some of the guys that that finished on the yep. front page of the leaderboard, and I'm probably going to leave out like the West Coast, really good guys that I don't know of. So no, in, not intentionally leaving anyone out there, but just like the household names, I'd say obviously you had Spencer Sheffield up there, Chris Saldane, Luke Clawson, uh, Todd Klein. I need to get Todd Klein on the show. He's like he was like a professional surfer, right? Like on tour and stuff. Yep. He's, he's a really good friend of mine. He, I stay with him every year. He's my roommate for the open. So uh, you I've would talked love talking to, him, to him. Uh, I've talked to him before, like on the phone and like really enjoyed it. And then I just, it, it, I, I need to get him on the show. He would be a great like show to compare because I think that big, uh, surfing and the surf competitions, I always say like, Oh, there's golf and there's bowling and there's individual sports, but, and rodeo. But the more I, get into it and i just watched this big wave surfing documentary that's why because it was on hulu or one of those deals but i feel like surfing is like really close to tournament bass fishing as far as like uh uncontrollable variables like waves your timing when you're out there the judging like the whole nine yards like a lot of guys at the top making big money a lot of guys trying to survive just a lot more tan and 
blonde hair, I guess. A Probably more, so. A lot more Roland Martins over on the big <laughs> the surfing tour. <laughs> but anyway, uh, uh, Todd Klein, Justin Kerr, Cliff Perch, Joe Rube, Roy Hawk, Byron Velvick, Tim Klinger. I mean, those are the guys that are just in the top 40. Like, that's a lot of good Western guys. For sure. Yeah, I mean, it, it definitely brings out the best fishermen in the West to fish that tournament. And um, this was one, you know, it definitely seems like when it's really, really tough, um, a lot of times the guys that have, have you know, a lot of experience um, are able to kind of find a way to, to battle through that. And, uh, mm -hmm. you know, this week you could definitely see that, you know, the guys that were pretty well trained with their electronics uh, definitely shined. Was it was it an electronics deal for you? Like, were you were you hunting down the fish that you ended up weighing in? Yeah, you know, a lot of it was looking at your live scope. Um, I definitely didn't catch every bass, uh, you know, off of live scope, but I caught a lot. Um, but using the whole package, right? Just understanding your mapping, watching your live scope. I caught some fish off two D sonar, uh, old really? school style. Yep, yep. You know, it's just. The thing on that lake was there's there's so many carp and catfish that are real close to the same size as bass. Um, it was really important to be able to distinguish a carp from a smallmouth from a catfish. And uh, your live scope, you can do it. Um, but 2D is also a great tool for that. As you, as you know, you know when you go over a, a arch um, or a fish swims under the boat, that color palette on your 2d is is a great tool for knowing what you're looking at and uh, there were several times where i said oh that's a that's a bass right there let's let's slow things down and, and make this thing bite because it was a dude seeing bass was at a premium you might go three or four places and not see a bass and when you would see one you made sure you, you wanted to catch it before it got away are, are you willing to go a little bit deeper into this color palette and identifying species or would you like to keep sure. that under your hat? No, I man. I, mean, I, it's, I find that interesting. Yeah. I brought it up just to talk about it. Right. It's uh, you know, and it, um, everywhere you go, fish are going to look different on your sonar, right. Depending on the depth that you're at, depending on what the water looks like, depending on how, what the fish are doing everywhere you go, they always look different, but uh, you know, smallmouth are such a dense fish. They leave a really nice crisp, arch right whereas uh something like a carp they're big but they don't have they're not as muscular they don't leave as as hard of a of a, a crisp bright arch as a smallmouth does so you know a lot of you could say it and talk about it all day it, it always boils down to just getting out there and seeing it over and over and over and over and and, and learning it for yourself and and testing it out right you see it i think that's a smallmouth let's drop and he didn't bite, he might not be a smallmouth. Or I think that's a smallmouth, and wow, he bit. It's a smallmouth. And you just that picture that of what it looks like on your screen just kind of gets gets ingrained in into your into your brain. But again, it changes everywhere you go. Like, and you know that too, like a, a fish on a live scope that's that's when when you're in 15 feet of water looks a lot different than it does in 35. I want to get into the forward facing thing because it's been ticking me off a lot like, lately, Josh. Like, uh -oh. we'll say, like Randy did the thing, block it, where he's like, 86% of people want it outlawed. And I've been watching it and it drives me nuts. And I, I love Randy. I like what he's doing. I like healthy discussions in bass fishing. Massive yeah. respect for Randy. Block it. No. But dude, I think he's 100% wrong on this. 
I, 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 you were one of the best drop shotters, one of the best clear water, small mouth guys before there was forward facing technology. Before there was any of this, I would venture to say that out of the 200 boat field in this U.S. Open, well over three quarters of them had the forward facing technology on their boats as well. Yet, consistently, we see anglers who are at the top of their game on different things still at the top of their game with the forward-facing technology. And if it was as simple as find smallmouth, see smallmouth, catch smallmouth, then you'd be in a tie with everyone else, but you're consistently ahead of it. There is a massive skill, and you just did a little bit in the 2D, but with the forward-facing technology, regardless of which of the three brands that you're using, there is a massive skill in implementing it, utilizing it, and catching fish off of it. And it has nothing to do with just, oh, well, I was able to, to see them, so I was able to catch them, and I was able to catch them. I mean... What are some of the things that make you better than everyone else who has it? Well, and, and yeah, I'm definitely not better than everyone else that has it. But get, yeah, get, it does. Just it, answer it, the question. You don't have to. You know, a, you're good at it. You're very good at it. It is. It, it does. You know, you're talking about how it bothers you, and it it bothers me a little bit, dude. When you get someone who doesn't fish real seriously, or, or even maybe does, but is not really stoked about the forward facing sonar and and just wants to chalk up every fish you catches because you have live scope right like you got live scope dude it's easy for you if i had live scope i'd be i'd be catching just as much right and uh that that definitely bothers me a little bit because i agree it's a it's a tool just like anything else um you know the guys that embraced it really early on you can see a little separation as far as is what they're doing. There's some guys that everyone knows the list of maybe 10 guys that have really been dominant over the last few years. And that's been a big part of it is, is their willingness to learn it and really focus on it more than others. And um, I don't know, man, it's a, it's one of those things that if it got taken away, I would really, it would be a hard uh, pill to swallow just because you've, you've, you've integrated it so much into your fishing over the last few years but uh, yeah, it's not like it's different guys that are doing well. Um, if you go back to 2017 and look at look at the guys that were doing well, a lot of them are Same still guys. the guys that are doing well, right? Yeah, I, I think there was a little bit of learning curve. I think Kevin was really good with side imaging when it came out and really yeah. had that dialed in. And look at what he did for that three or four years. Now I'm not saying that's because of side imaging, but I think it was a tool that he and several other guys on the Elite Series back then utilized to find high target percentage areas faster than the other guys. And now, every, you know, everyone adopted it, but there's still guys, you know, Timmy Horton's a good example of that too, who are early on it, but I don't know. It frustrates yeah, me because it, like, I mean, you, me too. you were, you've won hundreds of thousands of dollars without forward facing technology <laughs> on a drop shot. Yeah. Just, it makes you a little more efficient and um, a lot more efficient. And, and I love having it, you know, it, it's still, it, I, it's getting more and more expensive to fish. Right. And you hate, right. you hate that, you know, a kid feels like he needs to to go out and spend that kind of money to get in, to, to go out and be successful. But at the same, on the same note, yeah, a lot of the, the, the folks complaining have it on their boat and uh, they made, maybe just didn't put the time in. Right. Yeah. And, and I think you're also getting to the, the point where it is becoming a four. Listen, I have, I use a nine inch screen and don't have the latest and greatest stuff. I mean, now it's getting to the point where you can do a 16-inch screen and the latest and greatest stuff, but you can also have the same thing for $3,000 less than, you know, if you want a 16-inch screen and the latest and greatest stuff. It's an investment that, it you is. know, if you're fishing tournaments, it's an investment that, that you need to make, period. 
you know, if, you know, there's only one John Cox and, yeah. and anyone that, that, you know, is, is a young tournament angler or an aspiring tournament angler that says, I want to do it with a flipping stick and fishing shallow all the time. Like that's a pretty tough road, man. It's tough enough. It's a tough enough road using the technology at, that you can get at your fingertips. And, uh, you know, there aren't many John Coxes that can do it otherwise, man. That's true. Um, so, so you think part of your key then was there weren't fish everywhere. You had to move a lot. You had to find the fish. So you really then didn't know. It wasn't like you had a school that you went back to for three days and, and picked Definitely off not. your five and then kind of got guarded it. You had to make on the fly decisions each day of this U S open in order to stay ahead. Yeah, it definitely was one of those deals where, um, the fish weren't, apparently the fish really grew up, up there later in the fall and it's really awesome. But we were kind of in that transition a little bit. There were small groups or wolf packs of fish, you know, it's pretty common to catch one and have two or three with it, you know, following it in, but you definitely didn't pull up or idle over a spot and see 50 of them sitting there waiting to be caught, you know, like, like you might see on the great lakes or mm -hmm. something like that. So it was a lot more hunt and pack and, uh, you know, and that's just desert fishing in general, you know, they're, they're, these are good lakes on the Colorado river, but they don't have like crazy massive fish populations. There's a ton of dead water and, uh, you're just, you're, you're trying to take advantage of the few opportunities that you do get. Execution wise, uh, pretty flawless tournament for you it was good until the last day of course the oh, last no. day is always going to be the toughest right and <laughs> yeah. uh dude it you know i had good bags early on the first two days not losing fish just all gravy right like just having a blast out there and then the final day when everything's ramped up i go two hours without catching a decent fish in the morning so you know it just the pressure's building I finally catch like a, a three and a quarter pound or something like that and and just start working our way towards it. We're getting one every hour and a half. Like and luckily you talked about how there's no cut in this tournament. Billy does an awesome deal with this deal. That Billy's the tournament director, Billy Egan. Yeah. Um on the final day, because the whole field is gonna fish, he lets the the boat order goes first boat goes first and last boat goes last in the morning. But what's cool is it reverses at weigh-in. So if you're the first boat out in first place, you're the last boat that has to come in at weigh-in. So you get, you get to fish. rewarded for leading. Yeah, absolutely. You get to fish that long day. And hey, I mean, I've been there, dude. I've been in 150th place after the second day. And you don't want to fish till 515 on the final day <laughs> when you're 40 pounds out of the lead, right? Like yeah. you want to go home, dude. So uh, it works out good. And um you know, and I, I knew that I had the long day. So it was very, that was the one thing that kind of gave me peace of mind as uh, it was slow. And then, you know, lost a couple fish through the day. And then at the end, dude, I knew I was close. Um, and with like 20 minutes to go, I lost the biggest fish I hooked all day. Lost a giant. It was on for a while. And it just, it's smallmouth fishing. They just, sometimes they come off, you know, he comes up, jumps a few times and we get him pretty close to the boat. He makes one last run and just pulls off. And, uh, I felt, you know, it was one of those moments where you wanted to just sit there and crumble, but there was no time to do it. Uh, I just, I, I just kept fishing and five minutes later I, I caught one almost as big and, uh, definitely was the fish that sealed the deal. So, um, it was, uh, if I would not have caught that second fish, I might still be having nightmares about that first one, but, um, it doesn't matter now. 
Awesome. You mentioned, uh, you said we'd catch one every hour and a half. That's one of the other cool things about the U.S. Open. Triple A, they're considered triple A anglers, but it's a random draw. I mean, you could get a guy who's never fished before. You could get a guy who's a established pro who just decided to jump in on the triple A side, but it's combined weight. So, you know, if you catch all five for... 2345 and your co-angler sits back there and eats ham sandwiches he's got 2345 at the end of the day just like you do or vice versa yes uh, yep. it seemed just the way you described like a like kind of a challenging tournament for the triple a to be a, a real big asset how did you kind of work that into where they could add to the weight as well or or did they that's a great yeah great question because uh you know that style of fishing you know typically if you're a triple a co-angler you have a better chance when you're fishing out deep offshore, right? Cause mm-hmm. you're not boxed in on the bank fishing for scraps. Um, if you're out in open water, you can cast anywhere, you know, a lot more opportunities. And in this case, um, there weren't a ton of fish and it was so specific. You know, I'm sitting there looking at the electronics, trying to play cat and mouse with fish. And it just doesn't make sense for us both to be doing that because like you're getting in each other's way. By the time I explain what I'm looking at, the fish has already swam off and done something else. So I pretty much focused on what I was looking at and uh, my co-anglers who were all awesome, all three of them, um, all good fishermen, all fished really, really hard. I said, just the best thing that you can do is have your line in the water, throw a drop shot and, um, and, and just keep that bait wet. And that's really what, what all of them did was they, they fished super hard all day long and uh, just kept their line in the water. They, we, I threw a Berkeley flatworm. I gave them each a pack of Berkeley flatworms to, uh, to throw themselves. They would put it in their pocket and that'd be their baits for the day. I said, you know, look, I, I, I don't know what you've been catching fish on, what you have confidence in, but I have a lot of confidence in this right now. And if you would just drop shot this flatworm all day long, um, it gives, it gives us our best chance. And, uh, really all of them, all three of them caught, um, a one nice smallmouth that went into the bag. That format's really cool working with another guy. You know, typically if you're fishing a draw tournament and your, your, your weights aren't going towards each other's bag, it's very competitive in the boat, right? And, and you want to be a good guy and be happy for your partner when he catches a fish, but it's hard because that's a fish that, isn't going in your bag and it's coming off of your spot, you know? So it's one of those things where it makes it an awkward kind of competitive edgy situation into you make real fast friends. You learn from each other. You have a good time. You help you net each other's fish. And uh, it's just a great format. And that's part of, I think why the recipe uh, of the U S open is so cool. And um, you know, if you're, if you're an angler from, another state that's always thought about the U S open. It's pretty cool. You know, just, just that fish in that format and then, uh, getting to see a, a, a unique different type of fishery. And a lot of guys like it, they stay in, you know, when it was at Lake Mead, they would stay closer to Las Vegas, um, say in the casinos, you know, have, have a good time just uh, through the week, you know, just, it's a very different environment for a uh, bass tournament. And I think that's, that's part of what makes it special, you know, and, uh, I guess as Matt's out to go a little bit more into the actual setup and technique that I was using out there. Um, it's, it's, it's the same technique and, and setup that I use when I'm fishing up North and back East. That's that Berkeley flatworm, green pumpkin. Um, uh, I use a 610 medium light Abu Garcia pro series drop shot rod that I helped work on and design. 
uh, Revo 30 reel and uh, eight pound X5 braid to a six pound liter. You know, that the water was super, super clear out there. Six pounds as light as I'll ever go. You know, talking, I heard Matt talking about, you know, uh, some of the Japanese anglers coming in using three to six pound tests. And that's awesome. But I just don't have the uh, guts to go below six. Elite Series Pro Daryl Gleason here. My Pro Guide batteries keep me going on those long tournament days and long practice days. Always plenty of juice, never fail. The best part about Pro Guide batteries, it's the people behind the company. They have over 40 years' experience in the battery business, keeping all of us fishermen out on the water longer, catching more fish. Check them out at ProGuideBatteries.com. What's up, Bass Talk Live fans? Brandon Polinick here. And ever since I won a couple Bassmaster Elite Series events on X-Zone Lures, I've been getting a bunch of questions of what makes them so special and different. And really, the truth is, it's in the details. The little details, things like no cheap fillers in their plastic, that gives you more lifelike action, more realistic and vibrant colors. But don't just take my word for it. Go to www.xzonelures.com and check them out for yourself. Vibrating jigs are a great choice for any time of year, and the Kamikaze Swim-On is a perfect match for any vibrating jig. Two sizes and the unique tail design gives it a bait fish profile and a great swimming action for realism. There are 17 colors. See them all at BigBiteBaits.com. The Spro Little John crankbait has been around for almost 15 years, and it is one of my go-to crankbaits whenever I need a fish in the boat, so you can never have enough new colors. That's why Spro's coming out with a handful of new colors, including Pearl Shad, which has this bleached out white look, but it's got this pearlescent, really, really pretty. We've got Copper Shad, which looks amazing in the water. It's got that purple flake on the back, really, really pops in the water. And then if you want some real pop, we've got Sparkle Shad, nothing but sparkles all over this thing. And then last but not least, we've got the matte sexy shad just a really different looking color for a crankbait so you want to give them a little different look that matte sexy shad is definitely the one to go with all these colors are available in the original little john and the md combining one of the most popular hook styles with gamakatsu's beefier superline offering the gamakatsu superline offset round bend delivers the strength necessary to target big fish in heavy cover. Well suited for braided line and heavier fluorocarbon, the Gamakatsu Superline Offset Round Bend is built using stronger Superline wire that allows anglers to easily fish a finesse worm around heavy cover. The Round Bend offers a larger bite area, perfect for any worm presentation, while increasing your hookup ratios. The newly enhanced Z-Band holds your plastics on the hook longer, reducing the number of pull-offs and reducing damage to plastics. Available in 2-aught, 3-aught, 4-aught, this is the most durable worm hook designed for heavier lines that hold your bait on longer. Preparation is key to success. And that preparation starts well before you ever hit the water. You're only as strong as your connection to the fish, and your line is that critical connection. Confidence in your line every minute, every day on the water, is a necessity, and failure, it's not an option. Sunline makes the fluorocarbon, nylon, and braided lines to give you the strength to guarantee your confidence. Hookwise, uh, are you a guy that's stuck with pretty much the same hook for the duration of your smallmouth fishing? Yeah, it really depends a lot on the bait. 
Um, you know, and for me, you know, I, I really, if, as long as I'm not like fishing real shallow and casting, I, uh, I still go a lot of times with a traditional uh, drop shot style hook, you know, that fusion 19 drop shot hook, number one, it's a pretty safe bet. You know, I, um, using, <clears throat> using, uh, my, my setup overall was a little lighter this week. Like a lot of times the great lake smallmouth fishing, um, you might use a little bit bigger bait. You might use a medium action rod. Uh, maybe eight pound test, you know, maybe even 10 in some cases, because those fish, they're just more aggressive, right? They don't get fish for quite as much. Uh, there's more of them and they're just more aggressive. I downsized everything this week a little bit, just because again, I was fishing a little deeper at times. Um, the bites were real subtle. Like they weren't, you would rarely ever feel a tick or a tap. It was just pressure. They'd slowly swim over and, and suck it in and it would just feel mushy. So using a medium light, like action rod was really critical six pound test too right if you're using six and you've got a medium action rod you're asking for trouble like you can do it but that medium action has got a lot of power compared to a medium light you get a, a four or five pound small mouth on the side of the boat maybe you know you you could have nicked a rock or something like that we do have zebra mussels out there so lighter set, set up across the board was was key um this week and then uh you know the the number one drop shot had pretty pretty basic hook selection three eighths ounce weight but um the one i really like that medium light action rod and i'm i had gone away from it for a while and now i'm really back all in on it the one time that it's it's a little bit of a weakness is if you can't use a net um if you uh -huh. can't use a net and you've got to control fish at the side of the boat trying to scoop them up with your hand it's nice to have a medium action because you can steer that fish's head, you can steer him towards you and scoop him up. If you have a medium light, you have a little bit of less power there. But in this case, we're using a net, which 99% of tournament fishermen are able to use a net anyways, right? Um, so I, I'll take that extra sensitivity. I'll take that extra forgiveness for with those fish when they want to make that crazy run on the side of the boat, stuff like that. It's good stuff. Uh, Jim would like to know whether tungsten weights make a difference in your thoughts on tungsten with the D shot. Huge, huge difference. And what's funny is Matt, you were the first guy to tell me how much of a difference tungsten makes with your, um, on live scope, how much easier you can see tungsten on live scope. You're the first guy to tell me that a couple of years ago. And, uh, dude, I completely after, you know, two years you down agree? the road, I agree wholeheartedly, man. I actually on my, on my YouTube channel, dude, I, uh, I did a, a comparison. I was talking about that new Garmin transducer and I got a video of a three, a sounds drop shot falling lead and then tungsten and, uh, night and day, you can see that tungsten so much easier. Um, and of course everyone knows the other benefits of tungsten. It's harder. You can feel the bottom structure a lot better, smaller. So it's less of a footprint down there, but, um, really it's awesome because you can, if you're using live scope, you can see your bait that much easier. And, 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 you know, you hear it a lot, but the, the goal when you're looking at fish on live scope is to be able to see your bait and see your fish on the same screen. Of course, for number one, you know, your bait's close to the fish, but the other reason is you can see them react. You know, when your bait's in front, you know how to present your bait and uh, being able to see your drop shot weight um, makes a huge difference. I would almost venture to say tungsten would be more important in practice in the tournament because in practice, you're also trying to figure out bottom composition, yeah. trying to move faster. You can have a smaller weight that moves faster. You can feel the bottom better. Like 
even though you would think it would be reverse, you'd want to go lead and then tux it in the tournament. If I had to choose like if i'm trying to learn an area i'd rather go tungsten in practice even yeah i i agree it's it, it's ideal to, to do both but yeah practice is so important man right and uh and in that situation it makes a lot of sense but yeah in that dude I, i'm all about not changing anything in the tournament right so if you're gonna splurge for the tungsten in practice okay. <laughs> keep okay. it going right like uh uh i don't know for for me anyways I don't know where I saw it. Did you see that deal where that guy created like a lipstick that you put on your line that makes your line like stand out more for forward facing sonar? Wow. So like instead of just having to look for your little the weight and then the bait above it, it's like an actual line that drops and you like put it on your line like waxing a surfboard or something. That's pretty clever. Uh, it's got like some sort of ions or something. I don't know. Hmm. Yeah, that's pretty cool. I like that. Can you see it? Is it like, can I have no anything? idea. I just saw it in, in passing. Hmm. We're uh, seeing a lot of new products. Just it's a great opportunity yeah. for companies. Do you do a lot of, stuff. do you do a lot of product development at all? You know, uh, a fair amount over the last few years. Um, it's pretty cool working with Berkeley and Abu like that rod that I used this week. I helped design. It's part of the pro series. Um, it's the drop shot rod and, and that pro series, you know, when you see them in the, in the store shelves, you'll, you'll know who's is who's because the, the handle of the the butt section of the rod between the two grips matches everyone's boat wrap. So mine's like a purple camo. Interesting. Um, Bobby's is orange. Justin's is red, white, and uh, you know, uh, red, white, and black. Adrian's is like a lime green. Hunter's lime green. But so that's pretty cool. Um, I helped develop a spy bait for Berkeley um, a couple of years ago, and then uh, I do uh, the, the the folks in Spirit Lake that actually are at the facility designing baits, creating stuff. Um, I'm really close with them and, you know, they like to have stuff tested out in a lot of different environments. Right. So with me being out West in maybe a, lot, a little tougher fishing situation than some, and also being able to fish all winter, I get a lot of stuff sent to me because yeah, a lot of the guys are either hunting or frozen out, you know, in the wintertime, or it's just too cold to get out and really test stuff. So I get a lot of stuff sent to me to go, to go mess around with in these, uh, desert lakes during the winter are you still uh rolling with smoky mountain going into 2023 yeah man it's pretty cool they've been a sponsor of mine since my very first year so i was gonna man. mention it has to be one of the longest non-endemic title sponsorship runs going in professional fishing right now dude yeah it's it's pretty it's pretty special uh and i'm really thankful to to be affiliated with those guys it's smoky mountain herbal snuff and pouches it's a it's a tobacco alternative so it has no tobacco no nicotine it's an alternative that basically it's a it's a tool to design to help you quit uh chewing tobacco and uh they love bass fishing they they've loved the partnership and uh yeah just a, a great partnership with those guys for yeah going on 11 12 years wow that's hard to believe I remember Crazy. when that first came first came about. It's like, oh, that's a cool one. You've got some very interesting non-endemics. <laughs> yeah, I've got a maple syrup sponsor. Everyone likes to uh, ask about that one for sure. That's pretty sweet. Uh, Anderson's maple syrup. They're out of Wisconsin. Uh, everyone loves maple syrup. It's so good. goes goes well with your fishing breakfast in the morning. Um, uh, yeah, Boat I've cleaner, got I'm, the bling sauce. Bling sauce is awesome. Yep. And that's something that I bet a lot of your listeners do use the hot sauce from everyone knows hot sauce. Everyone knows, you know, that hot is bling sauce, hot sauce. Yeah, it is. Bling sauce is the, is the company, but hot sauce is the product that everyone uses to wipe their boats down after 
a day of fishing. You got a grill sponsor? Yep. Heck yeah. Green Mountain <laughs> Grills. Dude, this is great. You're letting me plug everything. No, I'm serious. Uh, you have unique sponsors. I'm not intentionally letting you plug it if, if it was just like normal, but I'm interested in hearing about these. Yeah. It's, it's, everyone's different. Like everyone, you know, it's, it's every single sponsor that you have comes about in a different way, right? Like sometimes you just happen to shake the right person's hand at the right time and they took a liking to you. Sometimes it's, uh, you know, like I've got a local connection to Green Mountain Grills. Their office is based out of Phoenix. And that's a huge thing. If you're a, if you're an angler looking to get sponsorship, I mean, and if you can find a company that's corporate offices is in your, in your city or in your state, what an advantage that is, um, both to make that connection, but also to be able to stay in touch and work together and do things. It's, it's a huge advantage. We had the cooler wars a couple of years ago where everyone had yeah. a different, I mean, cooler companies are coming out of the woodwork. Now I think we're entering the era of grill wars. Dude, that's a fantastic point. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The coolers <laughs> were, were funny, but uh, yeah, the, in the grill wars, it's everyone wins, man. Everyone's eating good food and, and looking at good food on Instagram. And uh, I think that's a, that's a winner for everybody. Is green mountain a pellet or charcoal or gas? It's a pellet. And okay. uh, the, the big advantage is that it's one of the pellet grills that gets up the hottest if you want it. So you can cook real slow and smoke stuff at 200, you know, all day ribs and stuff. But if you want to sear a steak, you can crank it up to 550 and sear a steak, which is pretty And it'll cool. get up to 550. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. So that would save yep. having to carry the griddle to do the sear. To yeah, you the, pull them the off, crank it up, and then throw them back on. So I've got a little travel grill. It's called the Trek, and uh, I travel with it. It goes everywhere, and uh, we cook on that thing like five times a week at tournaments. I know you guys grill a lot at tournaments, man. Yeah, we didn't do it. So we you. didn't do it that much this year. So another funny truck story. I had my transmission went out midway through the year. Well, oh, I my always, gosh, dude. I always brought the pellet grill with me, a little little portable Traeger that the girlfriend got for me for my birthday, and then Bradley would bring his smoker to sub. Funny, I mean, it's a big giant thing. You do like a really great, yeah. But then midway through the year, my transmission went out. When they ended up towing my truck, they put it on a flatbed backwards and ripped my topper off. Ah, <laughs> oh. so that I've been gone the whole time, haven't gotten it fixed yet. So it would just be a Traeger in a fifteen hundred bed, which probably wouldn't last a day or two before it was gone. So we've just been rolling. We've been rolling grill free for the last half of the year, and it's not nearly as enjoyable or cheap as bringing the grill with you. It's so nice, isn't it? After a long day on the water, to like you got to unwind a little bit, right? Even if you have a long day of practice, there's got to be that process of unwinding a little bit. And there's no better way than to throw something on the grill and uh, shoot the breeze with your buddies while while you're cooking something, right? Yeah. What's your favorite? Absolutely. What is is Bradley like? The fact that he's bringing a big smoker like that is he yeah, like a pro, so, dude? No, Bradley does like the the pork butts and the brisket. Like he knows how to do like you do the stuff where you like wrap it in mustard and put it and then do oh, like yeah. slow. He does like the big cuts of meat, which I'm a complete novice at. Like I don't, I've never done like I've never done a prime rib. Like he can do the prime rib or the brisket, the pork butts, all the all the fancy good stuff, you know, where you go in and you just buy like just a lunk of meat. Uh, and he's good with, you know, but I do more like kind of the chicken and the cuts, like the, the cool. fillets, ribeyes, strips, stuff like that. 
So would you? You'll probably do a pork butt at the beginning of the week, and then have the leftovers all week. Yeah, he he'd eat it all. You eat it when he did it. You know, you eat it all week, and then make your sandwiches for the day on the water like that, and then you just get like the sides and roll with it. And we will we'll eat out like well once a week. Like we hadn't eaten out for a long time. We ate it had to eat at the stump this past weekend. Uh-huh. At uh, Sam Rayburn and Bradley and John walk in. They just qualified for the Elite Series at Sam Rayburn sat there at the at the weigh-in it's really cool i'm sure it'll be in brad's video sat there at the weigh-in hank comes down he goes brad and we're getting in the boat and he goes hey i just want to let you know you're confirmed and brad's like awesome and he's like you can't get any info now you're like in you're an elite series guy but brad had put in at the different ramp and hadn't made the cut so john was there so like I'm sitting in the middle between brad and john and they just qualified for the elite series we're running back over to the other ramp and brad's like we're going to the stump he goes, we're going to the stump. They walk <laughs> into the stump. All the anglers are there, like buying a drinks and stuff like that. It was just, it was a real cool moment. After You'll never forget that. That's such an iconic uh, fishing restaurant, too. That's uh, how many tournament celebrations have been held at the stump, dude. Oh yeah, we was like a walked lot. in the back, and there was just like a drink in his hand before it even started. Everyone came over and was, you know. The kids came over and, you know, congratulated him and all that that he didn't know. It was, a, it was just a real cool moment. Yeah, that's uh, great. But that was one of the, like, the only time we ate out. Well worth it, though. <laughs> that's good. And, and, dude, well, hey, I not to take it down an even uh, gruesome road here, but uh, I think I had food. So after the U.S. Open the other day, I got so sick, man, so sick. And it was either food poisoning or uh, heat exhaustion. It was the – it was after the last night of the tournament. So whatever, mm-hmm. Wednesday night, 2 a.m., it hits me. And, uh, dude, that could have happened during the tournament. You know what I mean? Like, You'd have been the, done. I, could, I couldn't have fished the next day. I mean, I would have had to have tried. But, like, the way I, I – it was everything in me to be able to drive home. And I went right back to bed and slept for, like, almost 24 hours straight. I was so sick. Um, lost 10 pounds. I was sick. So that's, like – the fears with eating out, right? Like, and you hear yeah. those stories about that happening once in a while. So if you can eat something that you actually cook and, and, and have control over during a tournament, that's just one less thing to take out uh, a, a variable to take out. That's the truth. Uh, obviously I know you run a nitro and now you've got a brand new shiny, fully loaded bass cat on your hands. Uh, have you figured out what your plans are with the with the vessel yet? It was a cool picture that you posted there with, I mean, you want to talk about icons in the industry. Rick Pierce, been there, done that. One of the yes. biggest supporters of bass fishing on the West Coast. Really put a lot of resources into both the Wild West Bass Trail and One Bass uh, with the prize money being there in person to support it, to show the West Coast love. Uh, but what are your what are your plans with the new boat? Yeah, you know, and, and I am a nitro guy, um, so I'm going to have to sell the boat. Um, it's a beautiful boat. Um, but, yeah, I do. I want to echo what you said about Rick. He's done an awesome job uh, about support. He really believes in the West, and, uh, you know, big shout-out to him for being such a supporter of the of the West Coast. Because, um, yeah, it's you know, without that, these tournaments mm-hmm. aren't the same. So it's, it's pretty cool. Um, and, yeah, I mean, I got a beautiful uh, – Shiny boat. If anyone's interested, uh, what is, you know, it, a coo- is to- it a cougar? That's a cougar FTD. Yep. Yep. Um, Load, yeah, I'm just kind of waiting on some final paperwork, but it does have a, it's a, it's a legit boat to win in a tournament. Yeah. 250. I mean, typically you'll see an 18 footer get given away at a tournament, but this is a 20 plus footer with a 250 power poles, um, graphs, trolling motor. So it's a pretty sweet rig, man. 
Fantastic. All right. One more time then. Uh, if people want to listen to you, uh, on anglers happy hour, where, when, how often. How yeah. Again, thanks man. I get that. It's, uh, you know, on, on most podcast platforms, you know, if you listen to uh, iTunes or Spotify, you can find it there. It's called English Happy Hour, uh, myself and two of my best buds, Rob and Nick. Um, we've got a couple, uh, you know, pretty uh, pretty lively recent episodes. Um, we had Cody Spatz, a Western, Western fisherman, on a couple weeks ago. And, uh, man, he, he had some really fun stories to tell, a really fun guy. And uh, this past week we talked about um, – we, we talked about this past tournament. Uh, Nick, one of the hosts, was down and had some adventures down in Mexico. Those are always fun to listen to. Uh, and uh, he always gets into – has some interesting times down there. But anyways, yeah, you can, you can find it on those places. Um, you check me out on uh, on social media, YouTube as well, Josh Bertrand Fishing. And, uh, yeah, man, I appreciate anyone that, that comes over to listen. I know, uh, you know, we posted the meme of the uh, John Daly and Tiger Woods. We're kind of the John Daly of podcasts while you guys are the Tiger Woods of podcasts, but we have fun. It's a lack of power, apparently. Thank you for holding down the <laughs> fort today during the uh, storm. Like, I can't hear anything now. I think we're good. Uh, I'm not going to tempt fate by coming back with a final segment. I think we'll just we'll just bring it out with you. It's uh, uh, U.S. Open champion Josh Bertrand. I love being able to refer to people like tomorrow. It's Elite Series Anglers. John Sogup and Brad Hall. Like I love the new like names in front of it. It's cool. You sound a lot more that. legit. I know, but like you can't say like U.S. Open champion Josh Bertrand without you smiling. Like you smiled, you didn't even know you were smiling when he said it. Just has yeah, a nice ring to it. it. Can't help That's it. That's good stuff. Uh, so uh, thanks for joining us. Like I said, Hallman Sogup tomorrow breakdown of the Open season, and then a we're working at. Uh, we'll have an interesting show on Wednesday, folks. Depending on. Uh, possibly some things coming down the pipe in the next 48 hours who knows maybe maybe not we'll either just have a standard show or a very special show on uh on wednesday but that's a little bit of a tease that's why it says tba can't jump the what is it called jumping it's not called jumping the shark jumping the gun what is it called you can't jump the like what's it called when you get ahead of yourself you can't put it's like another phrase for putting the car the car before the horse horse? but isn't it called jumping the gun like in yeah, the old sure. west, Not when they jumping. used to do that, when it. when you draw before you were supposed to, it's like, oh, you jumped the gun. What's jumping the shark though, dude? Or no, jumping the gun from? would be during a race when you take off before the starting gun starts. That'd be called jumping the gun. Yeah, but what's Leave jumping the shark? I don't know. I've never, I thought here. Okay, here's where jumping the shark came in. Uh. Jump of the Shark came in because I checked and saw that Shane LeHue was the last in the Bassmaster Classic, and his song is Baby Shark that he comes out to so subconsciously. That was in my head, and then I was thinking of it. I don't know, because I have the That's hilarious. right here. That, that makes more sense. Josh, you are the man. Uh, greatly appreciate it. Like I said, thanks for holding down the fort uh, and taking care of business during the uh, during the reboot. But My pleasure, thanks man. Up. Thanks for having me. Anytime. All right. This has been another edition of BTL on a Monday for October 24th. We'll talk to everybody tomorrow.